I think uh, anyone who preaches could probably attest to the fact that when you, when you study and you're getting ready to prepare something, you struggle to know what to include and what to not include, and you feel like in the end that you're robbing people by not giving them everything. And it's, this is just such a passage as that. It just feels like everything that I can offer, though it is good, is, is not the full meal deal. So with that in mind, I'm going to do the best that I can with this passage to be able to give you everything that would be given to you by the Lord today. So... It would be a very strong understatement for me to say that we as human beings have totally corrupted the understanding and practice of love. In our fallen condition, we see love through this lens of ourselves. In other words, how does the other person affect me? Do I benefit for another, from another person or do I suffer loss? Do they make me look good or do they make me look bad? Do they make me feel good or do they make me feel bad? Humanity has often demoted love to the place of a mere feeling as well. If we feel like loving somebody, then we love them. If not, then we must not love them, right? Or we simply stop loving them because we don't feel like it anymore. People so easily pick up a relationship or drop one based on feelings like that. Our society, our world, it's, it's filled with examples to prove this case, is it not? We can all attest to these things. The word love is thrown around all over the place, but the understanding and practice of love is really absolutely corrupted by the pride of man. Have somebody injure you, have somebody act selfishly, have somebody cause you great loss, and most people stop acting in a manner of love. But this is the exact opposite of divine love. True love, divine love, is at its core humble. This is love that is concerned about the benefit of another without any consideration for self at all. In fact, true love is directly proportional to the ability to humble oneself. And I want to repeat this because this is the main point today. True love is directly proportional to your ability to humble yourself. And as believers, we are only able to serve in a humble fashion because of the transforming power of God in our lives. And so we strive to walk in humble love, do we not? But if... If we were really to examine our hearts, if we really took the time to take an evaluation of ourselves and our behavior, is humble love really manifest in us? In relation to our spouse, our children, extended family, our church family, to unbelievers, even our enemies, do we love all of these in complete humility? Most of the time we view ourselves as humble because we compare ourselves to the behavior of each other or those people around us. We find it 
very easy to evaluate ourselves as humble. What makes this passage that we're looking at today so powerful is that it forces us to compare ourselves to the glorious character of Christ, the very one who showed us what the love of the Father actually looks like. The narrative of Jesus washing to the disciples' feet in John 13 is a well-known passage. You've probably heard messages on this passage before. But it's, it's well-known because of the fact that it places the pride of fallen man in direct contrast to the divine humility of Christ. And as we look at this passage today, my hope is that we will all make an honest comparison of ourselves to Christ in the manner of humble love. So let's turn together to John chapter 13 and read that very familiar passage. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 together. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was around his waist. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, No one who has bathed, uh, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning, that you would help us to see the glorious Son of God, and that your word would be clear and understandable to us. And we pray that you would, through your spirit, speak to us today through your word that you would challenge our hearts and encourage us. And that again, that Christ would be exalted and have a preeminent place. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So I want to start by giving a little bit of context. And so bear with me a minute. I I want to give a little bit of a flavor 
of the path that has led up to this night, this last supper together with his disciples. Jesus' ministry has lasted some three years, and at the beginning, his ministry was very public. He addressed large crowds, and he performed very public miracles, authenticating his his teachings and his claims about himself. It was all very public. But there was a growing tension that you know of between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, and he was making very bold claims regarding his authority. And he directly confronted the Jewish leadership, attacking their teachings, their traditions, and even their sincerity of their faith. And in John 5, 16 through 18, things escalate when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And it says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father's working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his father, making himself equal with God. In this chapter, John chapter 5, the growing tension comes to a breaking point and produces really a major shift in Jesus' ministry from teaching the masses at this point to primarily instructing the Twelve and preparing the Twelve. And instead of offering the kingdom, he begins declaring the hard message of an an inevitable torture and death on his part. Luke 18, 31 through 34 tells us, And taking the Twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, And everything that was written about the Son of Man and in the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And he will be mocked. And he will be shamed. And uh, shamefully treated. And spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But, it says, they understood none of these things. The parallel account in Mark uh, 9.32 adds that not only did they not understand the statement he was making, that it didn't make any sense to them, but they were afraid even to ask anything about it. It was a terrifying thought to them. They're they're likely thinking to themselves, what? Wait a minute. What do you mean the Messiah is going to be tortured and killed? What a horrifying thought. This is not the plan, Jesus. You don't get it. The prophets told of a conquering king and a subsequent kingdom, and and they assumed that they would certainly have a a prominent place since they are the closest disciples. That's their intention here. Messiah is supposed to crush all the oppressors and put all the Gentiles underfoot. That's the plan. The Messiah is supposed to rule over the world from Jerusalem and usher an unimaginable blessing, uh, fulfilling all the former covenants to their fullest. That's that's what they're intending. And it was their very expectations that led to no end of trouble amongst these disciples as well, as they constantly argued and jockeyed for position. Right after the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember, where Jesus reveals his glory, Luke 9.46 tells us an argument started among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them might be the greatest. The parallel account in Matthew 18.1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How bold. 
Mark 9, 33 through 34, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Remember, James and John even get their mother involved in, Mark, or in Matthew 20, verse 20 and 21. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine, one will sit on your right hand and one on your left. Verse 20, 24 adds, Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. What a sad and pathetic display. Jesus heading for the cross for them, and they are merely concerned about their personal reward and position. And how revealing of humanity's fallen nature. Even if we do put on an outward display of humility, our hearts can be so deceptive. Hiding our selfishness, our our prideful motives... And others can't see it. Their eyes, their eyes can't see it. We appear so humble on the outside. Still, Jesus repeatedly announces that he is going to, going to be sacrificed when they reach Jerusalem. And what makes this passage today so powerful is that it forces us again to compare ourselves to the glorious character of Christ, the very one who showed us what the love of the Father looks like. We're supposed to see that in this passage. Jesus still, he's repeated that he is going to be crucified. And in Matthew 16, 21, after Peter's great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, it says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And get this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, you shall never, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God, God's interest, but man's. The disciples were constantly concerned about their own benefit, while Jesus was concerned about their true needs and not for himself at all. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances, was he? He was fixed upon accomplishing the will of the Father and about mankind's deliverance. And he was not concerned about his own comfort. His predetermined sacrifice was following a divine timetable. In John 7, while teaching at the temple grounds, Jesus declares that he is from the Father. In verse 30 says... So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. Again, John 8.20, and no one seized him because his hour had not come. God's God's, God's will to demonstrate his love resulted in the Son of God coming to earth as a humble sacrifice, but it was not going to occur until the exact time and in the exact way that the Father had laid out for it to happen. So now we come to verse 1 of our passage today. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour of his suffering and sacrifice has arrived. Here it is. This is the last time with them, the night where his sacrifice begins. The wheels are set in motion. Judas would soon betray him, one of his own disciples. Soon he would be arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, mocked, spit upon, beaten, crucified. And when it says he loved them to the end, the word end is not the word chronos. It doesn't mean chronological order. It doesn't mean that Jesus loved them till the end of his ministry on the earth. Though that is true, right? We, we all agree that. He loved them till the end of his ministry, but this word is telos. And it literally means fulfillment or completely, perfectly, fully, totally. His love for them was reaching the supreme stage for which love could possibly love someone. That's what it means when it says he loved them to the end. One might think, and this is how many of us would think, one might think that a man on the verge of such great sacrifice would be absorbed with his own situation. But Jesus is more concerned about those who would be left after he's gone when he returns to the Father. He can scarcely think about himself save in connection with them. They're preeminent on his mind. In fact, the phrase, he loved them to the end, leads into four more chapters about Jesus in, in, in John here. It, it's just the beginning of a whole section of John. And it's where Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they must face, and he's giving them also, if you read through it, he's giving them a lot of powerful promises. And it caps off the whole thing with Jesus' high priestly prayer where he asked the Father to accomplish all these things for our benefit. Chapter 13 through 17 are deep expressions of Jesus' love for the twelve and for all who would believe through their testimony. And that includes us this morning. He was praying for us. But this is the evening where love begins and also where they took together the feast of Passover. Yet there's a problem at their meal. As they prepare to eat together, there's a problem. You can divide this message into four parts this morning as I go. There's a problem, a solution, a conversation, and an instruction. What's the problem? These men live in a dusty, dirty environment. Even if one has washed or bathed before arriving... You're walking across town in sandaled feet, and they get dirty. Maybe even muddy, depending on the weather of the day. In 2007, Becky and I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and Becky found it more comfortable to wear flip-flop type sandals all the time. It was more comfortable for her. And I want to tell you, you could always tell what region we had toured that day simply by looking at the color of her feet. And I didn't, I didn't realize just how dirty somebody's feet could get, but I tell you what, it, it was amazing. You, know, you, could, you could just tell by, uh, by the colors that she was adorning. 
But these men were reclining at the Passover table. Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper is nice, but almost no one at that time sat at a table with chairs. That, that just never happened. They reclined on the floor. And many in the Middle East still do this today, but they just recline on the floor. Hence the necessity for foot washing. Generally, foot washing was reserved for the lowest of servants or slaves in the house. I mean, after all, it is very undignified, and it was a very humiliating task. But if there is no servant or slave available, the lowest individual in the group that was present would assume the task, taking care and making sure everyone's feet were were clean. This was a normal part of life in that culture. In fact, there was generally water stored at the door of a home just for such a task. That was very common. But one of these, none of these men that had gathered there today, on that day, were about to humble themselves and wash the feet of everyone else like a slave. Not a one of them were about to start doing that. In fact, in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, it tells us that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. No, they were all concerned about their own position and reputation. And so they all lay in an undignified and in disgraceful state with each other's dirty feet sitting in front of each other as they reclined. Because nobody was going to move. So we come to the solution. So Jesus seizes this opportunity to teach them by example. Verses 4 through 5. He rose from supper... He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. What did Jesus do here? What's he doing? He's acting like a slave. He's acting like a servant. The disciples must have been shocked, to see the least, A ruler doesn't ever stoop and wash feet. This is incomprehensible. They must have been just tormented by this. So we're rather disconnected from this ancient culture in our Western world and the place that honor had in, in one's life. And we're weak to really understand the ramifications. But a king, a supreme ruler, was always elevated and exalted and people fought for that kind of a position. And if, if you ever simply approached a king in an unworthy way, or in an unworthy attire, or with any disrespect, or even having not been invited by the king into his presence, you died on the spot. You were executed. At that time, they must have felt shame as well. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus stooped down and washed feet like a slave because none of them took the initiative. Now Jesus, who should have had somebody washing his feet, was washing their feet. Which leads into our conversation. Everyone is in shock, but no one dared to say a word, did they? 
except Peter. Nothing ever seemed to stop Peter when he felt compelled to say something, did it? He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? I'm certain everybody in that group was thinking the exact same thing Peter was, but he was the only one bold enough to say something about it. Lord, do you wash my feet? Maybe he felt he's being humble, but in reality, Peter's heart was simply repelled by what he considered to be an intolerable act for the king of Israel. This is not what you should be doing. It was offensive to him. Messiah should not be washing the feet of others. Other people should be washing his feet. That's what's acceptable. And look how Peter responds in true Peter fashion. Uh, While Jesus says to him, rather than, I love this too, because he doesn't flatten Peter, does he? He doesn't hammer him with a harsh rebuke. He's just a very gracious response. What, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What a patient rebuke. But look how Peter responds. This is, again, this is true Peter fashion. He elevates it to the point of a rebuke. (laughs) Remember in Matthew chapter 8 how Peter harshly rebuked Jesus because he would not accept the message that the Messiah would suffer and die? Well, apparently he didn't learn anything from that experience. Because he says, never shall you wash my feet. This is not fitting, Lord. This is not right. This is not what the Messiah does. This is inappropriate and unsuitable act. You won't do this. To which Jesus responds, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, for the Jew, washing and cleansing had always been closely associated with purification from sin. It was a big part of their lives, washing ceremonies. Jesus was not only demonstrating love and humility by washing their feet, he was also symbolically demonstrating their spiritual condition, that they were lost apart from his humiliation and death. Jesus said in Mark 10.45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His entire ministry was a continual work of humble service that would culminate in his final sacrifice. He, in essence, is saying, you still don't get it, Peter. This is only the beginning. My sacrifice, my humiliation are going way past foot washing If I do not take upon myself the greatest possible sacrifice and humiliation for you, you can have no part with me. Remember what I said in the beginning, our ability to love is directly proportional to our ability to humble ourselves. Folks, there is, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a greater condescension than this. Condescension, meaning transferring from a high position to a low position. It seems like such a a great thing for us to humble ourselves before each other, especially in strained relationships. It's great for us to humble ourselves, but it's actually a very short distance 
for us to stoop and wash the feet of each other. We're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's overwhelming to think about the most righteous, the most glorious son of God, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together by his power. He bent his knee and he washed you. And it is not humility to refuse what the Lord has done for us. It's pride. It's pride that prevents us. Without his act of humiliation, without his ultimate humility, we're doomed. True faith accepts the humble sacrifice of our Lord with reverence and thanks and worship and gives all to him in response so that we might gain him. That's what faith does. Peter, possibly because he's afraid of disfellowship with Jesus, I mean, he's literally given all to be with Jesus. Or maybe he's afraid of his lost position amongst his peers. I don't know. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. If I can't, <clears throat> if I can't have a share with you unless you wash me, just get it all then, Lord. Wash, wash everything. It's another true Peter knee-jerk flip-flop reaction. Don't you dare wash my feet, Lord. Okay, wait, wash all of me. You know, he just goes from one extreme to another. But Jesus patiently responds again in verse 10. The one who has bathed has no need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Before I unpack this a bit, let me ask you how meaningful it would be to have the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, look you in the eyes and say, you are clean. We know by faith that we are clean, but imagine having Jesus physically look you in the eyes and declare to you personally that you are clean. But I tell you today that if you turn to him in faith, that is exactly what he says to you. Still, what does this all mean regarding bathing and foot washing? What is all of this? As discussed earlier, a person can bathe and be clean, but as soon as they walk across town, their feet are filthy. I truly believe Jesus is pointing or painting for us a picture of sanctification here. When you're washed by the blood of Christ, you are clean. You are sanctified. You are positionally right before God. And that means you are holy. You are pure. You are righteous. You are set apart for him. You are his child. We call this positional sanctification. We are positionally sanctified before God, and that will not change. Yet, as long as we live in this corrupt flesh and we walk in a fallen world, we constantly need to wash away sin that is uncharacteristic of a child of God, do we not? 
I don't think anybody here is prepared to raise your hand and say you've reached sinless perfection. We call this progressive sanctification. We are constantly growing and changing and cleansing ourselves. That's why we read in 1 John 1.9, and I am paraphrasing here just to give the sense of the Greek, but it says, if we constantly confess your sins as you go, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's important that we understand this statement in John is not an if-then or cause-and-effect statement. It is literally an indicative statement. It is, a, it is a statement of fact. So you could easily flip it backwards and turn that phrase around and say, if he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we constantly confess our sins as we go. These coexist. They are simultaneous realities. But consider this, that Jesus demonstrates here what role we play in each other's lives. We, we actually participate in the cleansing work of progressive sanctification in each other's life if we can only approach each other with a spirit of deep humility and love. We, we actually participate in this cleansing work. But consider one more important factor as, as Jesus washes their feet that night. Whose, whose feet did he wash that night? The disciples, right? How many disciples were there? It was 12. Jesus had, or uh, Judas hadn't left yet. Jesus even bent down and washed the feet of Judas. This man who had absorbed the grace of Jesus for three years, heard all of his teachings, saw all of his miracles, was about to betray him to death and to humiliation. But look at the grace of Jesus, humbling himself before Judas one last time. But Judas, being apart from God, could not love, could he? It's not possible. It's impossible for him to love because the most important thing for him is himself. Without humility, one cannot truly love because true love is only possible through the Spirit of God. Which leads to Jesus' closing instructions. Despite all the theological implications from Jesus' symbolism, the main point is still the loving humility he's displaying. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you think they understood what he had just done to them? I think they did. I think they were both astonished and humiliated. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Again, according to verse 3, Jesus came to God and was going back to God. Isn't that what it said? He was divine. He's the creator. Literally, the teacher and the Lord. There is no greater teacher and there's no greater Lord. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So what's the implication of what Jesus just said? The implication is that if we are unwilling to love each other in the manner in which he just loved us, then we are presuming that we are greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our presumption by our behavior and our attitude. Finally, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So who here wants to be blessed by God? Who wants, who wants their life marked by being blessed by God? I think some of you would be a fool to say, I don't want that. Then it requires you to walk in a deep love, a deep humility before other people. You've got to humble yourself. The fact remains, if we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will want to walk as he walked, glorifying his character and demonstrating the righteousness of his ways. We will want to love as he loved. We will want that. Jesus had told these men that they would understand what he had done more fully later on. Remember how John and his brother James brought their mother to Jesus in order to secure a high position in the kingdom. John seemed to have learned his lesson, though, from Jesus' example that night. Listen to what he says in his first epistle. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But this is... this. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John gets it. He fully understands his point is that those who are regenerate, those who have the life of God, are characterized by the way in which they love one another within the body of Christ. It's manifest, it's characterized. But he says further down in that same chapter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. So what happened that night? The one who loves God should love his brother also. Praise God that we're cleansed from our guilt because we are going to struggle with our flesh, are we not? We're going to struggle with this. Paul said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. But we must not forget that the one who purified us also exhorted us to follow his example. It's not merely action, it's a heart attitude. 
just as Jesus loved us to the end. We read passage, we, we need passages like John 13. We need this. We need to constantly have this reminder, this standard of Christ walking, walking as he walked so that he might be glorified through us. That is how we express our love to him when we love each other as he's loved us. So, Father, we ask that you would help us and give us the strength to do that, Father. To genuinely take a humble and low position before each other. Not eager, eager for accolades or for position or for recognition, but willingly taking whatever low place is necessary for the benefit of each other. Not holding on to offenses, Father but lovingly cleansing each other's feet in humility. Father, we want to magnify the Son by the way in which we love each other, that he would be glorified as he rightly deserves to be glorified. So we ask you that you would give us each individually a greater spirit of humility and love towards each other and to the world and to our families that we would see ourselves a servant of all. We thank you for this passage, Father. We ask that you would be gracious to us and remind us of these things constantly so that we can walk on them. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.